Encouraging Cropping, the US Matters. Welcome, my name is Jeanette and I'm delighted that we have Jamie Boyle from RSBB who works in US with us today. Hi Jamie, do you want to introduce yourselves to the listeners? Hello Jeanette, yes I'm Jamie Boyle, I'm the RSPB Reserves Manager for the US Reserves out here. Um, I'm obviously not from US but I've been here since um, 1989. Uh, you're, not putting a, you're not putting a year count on that? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a long time though. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us on our podcast today. In a previous podcast, we had Patrick Laurie who discussed starting cropping on his farm in Galloway for the first time. But today we're going to travel to arguably the UK's capital of high nature value arable systems, the US Macher. We will discuss the traditional cropping systems and how they've modernised and why they are now so important both for people and the wildlife and what we need to do to allow them to prosper in the future. Jamie, for our listeners who've never visited UIST or watched the FAS video about the US Macker, can you describe it? Yes, yes. The Macker the is a sandy grassland that you find right down the west and the north of the UIST's. It, it, it travels inland for about a kilometre, kilometre and a half in some cases. But what makes the maca different from other sort of sandy grasslands is that this is shell sand rather than mineral sand. So it makes the area very different. The shell sand's obviously rich in carbonates and it's got a fairly, you know, most of the pH is over seven. So it makes wow. it very different from sort of mineral sands. And do you want to tell us why RSPB is interested in the maca? Why is it so important for birds? You know the the macas are fantastic for birds, and we we're very interested out here. It's based around the, you know the macas are all managed under the crofting system. But what makes the macas really good is that the maca we we talk about it as if it's sort of one habitat, but it's actually a real mosaic of habitats. So you go from the shore through the dune system and then across the sandy maca, and the maca the maca travels from it's generally to the west. It's quite dry and it gradually gets wetter and wetter until you hit lock systems and this finishes in sort of this on the, the, the east of the Maccas into these fairly substantial lock systems that run right down the US from North US to the South US. This mosaic of habitats along with the crofting system which has the cropping and the fallows which we'll talk about a bit later mm-hmm. but it creates this beautiful mosaic that allows a whole host of birds to live in this relatively small area and it creates nesting, feeding areas for a range of birds. So it's got a really high concentration of breeding birds. And this sort of concentration in such a small area makes it sort of, you know, one of the, the places in Britain to come and see birds. It, you, you've just touched on that, that UIST is a mecca for bird watchers. What birds are present on the Macher and which ones are in particular abundant there that maybe aren't so in other areas? Yeah, the, the US are particularly famous for the farmland birds around the, the macro and the crofting systems. So birds that are sort of um, used to be common across much of Britain in farmland, things like skylarks and meadow pipits are abundant across US, but the US macros are particularly famous for their breeding waders. These are the, the sort of six species of waders, oyster catchers, red shanks, lapwing, snipe, dunlin and ring plovers, all breed in huge densities. In fact, higher densities recorded here than anywhere else in Western Europe. Oh, wow, um, the whole of Europe. Absolutely, yeah. It's this, this that macro and this little mosaic of habitats is just perfect for them for feeding areas or nesting areas. And US have got one huge advantage as well for any 
ground nesting birds like all of these species are in that we've got very few mammals and so no ground predators okay so you don't have any foxes there no foxes no badgers stoats weasels none of these none of these um. animals got here the islands were cut off by the minch after the last ice age before land mammals could get across so that's a huge bonus because in other areas we we discussed working for waders and predation is a big concern but that doesn't trouble the the waders and us at all not at all not well i mean we, we do have ground predators now unfortunately us like islands all over the world have suffered from people introducing animals but considering how close we are to the uk mainland the, the us have done quite well and we've got about a dozen species of mammals that have been introduced um some of them accidentally Things like rats and mice have come across with people by accident, voles and uh, things like that have got here. Other species have been introduced on purpose. Um, rabbits are introduced for food. Crofters introduced ferrets to try and control the rabbits because they got out of hand. And the, sort of the, the one that's really hit the news, the introductions on the islands, are hedgehogs. Now, everybody loves hedgehogs. Fantastic little animal. Unfortunately, they've been introduced out here in an area that has never had a type of ground predator like hedgehogs and they've caused real problems for all breeding birds and is the hedgehog problem is that getting better at the moment it's not it's not it's um we're looking into how we can control them or ideally it would be good to eradicate them translocate them to the mainland catch them and translocate the hedgehogs a protected animal but it's what really makes these islands very special is that this lack of ground predators so we're working working with the government into looking at ways that we can control or completely eradicate them from the islands but at, at the moment they're still fairly widespread across south use and Benbecula. um scottish national heritage have been successful in removing them from the island of north us okay but there's st still work to be done on the others still a lot of work to be done in a previous podcast, we discussed how agricultural specialisation has meant that many of the arable systems have been lost from the west coast of Scotland. However, the west coast of Uist is an exception to this. Can you describe the current cropping practices that occur? Yeah, yeah, we've got we've got a fantastic cropping arable cropping system on Uist. It's as you said, it's one of the few places in western Scotland we still got a sort of arable crop system, and the system out here. Is it's very it's followed traditional lines. They're using modern machinery, but they still follow the very traditional sort of low input farming system where they're cultivating um, areas over a four year rotation. The rotation is two years of crops followed by two years fallow. Just about all the crofters follow this system across the US Maccas, and this sort of low input system is another reason you know the Maccas hold so many breeding birds and things. These fallow areas create ideal sort of nesting and feeding areas for a whole host of birds plus this system because the crops are grown and in a lot of the maca systems they're still open and common so the crofters have their own um, plots it means that cattle uh, which predominantly graze the maccas in the winter some areas use sheep as well but predominantly cattle cattle are moved off the maccas when the crops start growing so we have this really long grazing break of four months um, to allow the corn to come up and grow before it's harvested and it means all the surrounding areas around this these these arable areas all of the the fallow areas are left undisturbed for this four months which not only allows all of the the birds to nest in peace but also it allows botanically allows all the, the wild flowers to come up flower set seed 
and they're, they're ready for when the cattle, when the crops are harvested and the cattle are brought back down to graze the area. Okay, so cattle are integral to the macro systems. What benefit do they provide for wildlife? You know, they're absolutely integral to it. They're absolutely, they are the, the link that keeps these macro systems going. All of the arable crops are grown to feed cattle. That's their winter. The arable crops go as winter's food and the whole system is, is sort of based upon the keeping of cattle. So not only is the crops providing the food, their winter's food, it's also um, the cattle are brought back down and the cattle are wintered on the maca. The maca is ideal for wintering cattle because it's so sandy, it drains freely. So you can keep a lot of cattle in areas and they don't churn the whole place up like they would mm. in other sort of farmland areas. And there's lots of dunes and things to give them shelter in the winter. And all these little bits, even the cattle, the cattle cluster into the dune system for shelter from the wind and the elements. And all of the dung goes into the, some of these dune systems and you get big growths of nettles and other sort of herbaceous plants in these little hollow dune kulaks, they call them here. Um, and in the, the spring, when the cattle are taken off, you get things like nettles and things coming. I know farmers and crofters hate nettles, but the nettles are ideal for one of our really rare breeding birds here, corn creeks. And corn creeks often come into these little pods. So this link between cattle and the whole cropping system and a lot of the birds is really, really strong out here. Moving to a smaller scale of wildlife, insect loss is a big concern. How many species of insects have been recorded in the US Mackers and why is it so abundant? Do you know, um, insects are probably one of the most unrecorded, underrecorded um, sort of groups of animals we have. And we don't exactly know how many insects we really have. To give you maybe an example, the Maca Life, when we had the Maca Life programme, the the, um, the life-funded uh, programme, RSPB and SNH implemented across the US to help with the agricultural system. They did recording of insects. And in the three years they did recording, they recorded um, about 350 species of different insects. But I think we'd have, you know, many times more insects than that. And one of the traditional practices that is still very common in the US is applying seaweed. And under the Farm Advisory Service, we've created a practical guide on it. But why is RSPB so keen to promote this? Do you know, seaweed, seaweed is, um, it, we are very keen to promote it. And um, we looked, we've looked at areas that crofters use seaweed and we've compared them to areas that are just used with normal sort of um, inorganic fertilizers. And we found that um, seaweed sort of, uh, not only does it add nat nitrogen to the soil, natural fertilizer and, and potassium as well, but we found the areas that people use seaweed had a much higher diversity of um, herbs and uh, plant species. Okay. Far higher numbers of insects were found in these areas. Um, and we found birds. Birds were particularly targeting the seaweed areas for feeding. So in general, you know, it was really good. But seaweed, seaweed comes at quite a high price for the crofters. People think it's free and it's not because it's, it's you know, you need heavy machinery and you need to get it off the shore. And not only do you need heavy machinery and tractors, but you need the time to be able to do that as well. Seaweed, seaweed is very unpredictable. It gets washed up and you've got to be ready to go and get it when it gets washed up. Um, and most crofters out here have got full-time jobs as well. So mm -hmm. it, it comes at quite a high price, seaweed. Um, that's why we're very keen for it to be sort of um, 
to be targeted in the agro-environmental schemes and a subsidy put on the use of seaweed. And to give you some idea of the you know the quantities of seaweed crofters need, they estimate you need about 15 tonne per hectare for a cultivated area. Oh, so it's a it's like you said yourself, it's a significant operation and it definitely leads creates great biodiversity results. It does take considerable time and effort and cost to be able to maintain those benefits. It really does. It really does come at quite a high cost, but it it is, you know, it, it's it's excellent for the maca because not only does it put sort of nitrogen and potassium into the soil, but also it's um alginates and it binds the maca. One of the problems with the maca and sandy soils is that they don't hold the nutrients. So you can use chemical fertilizers over the maca, and um, that gives it a quick boost. Um, but seaweed, seaweed gets in there; it, it sort of binds the maca together. It also holds moisture, so it, it's it's very good all round um, for the crofters as well. And you know, we'd love to encourage we get more and more seaweed if we we could, but we realise that it's significant um, time resource for crofters and machinery resource for them. So. You know, it really does need, if we want to encourage more crofting, we've, we've really got to help the crofters financially. To allow these traditional systems to continue to deliver, both for, like you said, very good agronomic reasons, like the organic matter and the uh, helping with the droughts and things like that, but also, uh, like you said, the, the amazing uh, impact it has on the birds as well. So, no, that's really, really interesting. Thank you. Mm. Um, now, you've mentioned before in, in previous uh uh, previous uh, parts of the podcast about the the fallow system so so the maher is a system that's based on human disturbance but with fallow periods what are your thoughts of rewilding in this context do you know what it's a really interesting question it's interesting it'd be interesting to know what the maher looked like before sort of people sort of started managing it um but my thoughts probably on the maher is that the maher is one of the few or one of the habitats, maybe not the few habitats, one of the habitats that really benefits from the intervention of people. Okay. And the crofting system really helps um, create that mosaic we see across, across the Maca, which is really important for the biodiversity. What the Maca would look like without, you know, if you went to rewilding, you think, you know, there was no grazing animals out here. We think there was no grazing animals out yeah. there. There's a bit of a debate about whether red deer got here or whether they were present or not. Um, but certainly nothing like there is now for grazing animals. So my thoughts on the maca would probably be that it would be far less biodiversity on the maca if it wasn't for the farming system. No, that's really that. That's that's really interesting. So. In, we've talked so far about how um, how important um, uh, crofting is in the context and how it's uh, really delivering in terms of biodiversity. If we were to have this uh, as to record a similar podcast, maybe ten years time, what would you hope uh, would be the situation with the US mackers then? Do you know? I hope. I mean, the US the US mackers have got a, a number of threats and. Um, the biggest threat is the viability of crofting in that it's very small scale, it's very expensive. As you'll know, for people to, uh, to have sort of um, 20 cows, you've got to have the same machinery as if you've got 200 cows. So it's an expensive business. Keeping it viable, keeping it recognised by the government as being a really important habitat that is worth investing in. Um, 
one of the other big sort of scares about the macros that we mentioned earlier is the uh, biggest threat is introduced ground predators for the biodiversity of the macro, particularly the ground nesting birds. Um, more, or if we allow the hedgehog population to carry on growing, or if we allow other introductions, that's not going to have a real massive effect mm. out here. So what I'd like to see for the, the, the maca here, I'd like the maca and the crofting system within the maca to be more recognised as what it does in this high nature value farming. And we've always, we've talked about ever since I've been out here, we've talked about how high nature value farming and the, the maca system should be recognised in some way. Um, that's financially by the government, financial incentives. And I think at the moment we've got... Um, you know, we've got a great opportunity in that we've got a lot of people looking at where their meat comes from, uh, welfare issues around animals, um, the use of herbicides and pesticides and things like that. You know, the, the maca and the crofting system here really scores on all of these in that very few people use herbicides and pesticides, small numbers of animals, outwinter animals, and it sort of ticks all the boxes. And But when it comes to the prices that the, the crofters get, we you know, they get the same prices as probably you get from the mainland, probably slightly, maybe even less prices, and it's not recognised. And it would be great for some system where, you know, animals going into the food chain from these systems were recognised as high nature value animals, and there was a premium paid. Yeah, so I know, because it's interesting, it's a lot of other countries, I'm always surprised, like when you speak to French farmers, how, as an example, like, often it's just scotch lamb as, uh, or scotch beef is marketed whereas they've got all these different classifications and description of various different systems and things like that as a sort of a cultural thing but and also obviously is used for marketing as well so macher beef and macher lamb you think could help uh, be part of the the ongoing solution yeah absolutely and i think that really could be and i think the the other thing that happens out there as well in a way is that the buyers will come across the buyers are looking for the sort of the continental breeds of animals just because I suppose that's what they can make the most money on they take them onto the mainland and finish them up whereas the some of the traditional breeds are probably more suited less inputs and would fit the maca system but the crofters are pushed into uh, going for the more continental bringing continental bulls and things like that and again you know we could we could help if if there was some high nature value sort of market Mm -hmm. and premium prices paid we could really help uh, the crofters out here bringing in inputs you know very expensive bringing onto the islands fertilizers and everything else goes with it no because they've got you've got a lot of haulage costs Absolutely, um... yeah yeah so it's not really a fair system for the well they're not they're not in that sort of fair playing field when it comes to selling animals no no so you're uh, something that would adjust them the market signals would help yeah yeah absolutely you know as, as you said getting you know there's your scottish lamb having u.s u.s produced beef u.s produced lamb and this being recognized in the market as you know high quality low pesticide use and um, high nature value would go a long way to sort of making the crofting viable out here that's a really that's a really interesting uh, vision. And before we we come to a close, is there anything about the mackers that you think we haven't covered so far, or people are wanting to learn more? How can they go and do some a bit more investigations? Obviously, people's travel is a wee bit restricted at the moment. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, there's a lot of stuff online if people wanted to find out more about 
the, the marker and there's endless reports and things like that but really yeah you know we've got travel restrictions and things now but we'd ask people you know to maybe come out and experience the marker themselves and at the moment you know we have a, well, a lot of people come out here they, we're trying to push one of their my jobs in rspb is that we're we're trying to push the wildlife as a natural asset to the crofting system we've got quite a big following of sort of wildlife enthusiasts come out in the spring and the early summer but really the islands are really rich all year round so it would be great to see more people come out to see the sort of the, the crofting system and the wildlife associated with it in the, the sort of the winter and autumn autumn winter right the way through to early spring and that would oh. be you know real financial benefit for the islands the economy of the islands yeah that sounds very sensible because people would be getting certainly to see Euston in all its moods and the traffic would be a bit quieter as well then absolutely might be a bit blowy now and again but it still <laughs> gives the place character <laughs> fantastic well thank you so much for joining us today Jamie okay thank you Jeanette